Uh, can I read for us, though, Mark chapter 10? If you could turn with, there with me, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. I, I am going to be reading out of the NASB version. Um, and it says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Uh, can I pray for us? God, I think uh, for some of us, this is a familiar passage. Uh, but God, I pray that we would snap out of elementary understanding of scripture. Lord, as this church preaches your word and goes in depth into everything that it actually says and means, Lord, that we would be able to equate the words that we see written before us as the very words of our God. God, that you speak and God, that you are the one who uses this, that the Holy Spirit might bring to our remembrance everything that Christ commands, that Christ desires, that we might observe everything that you've commanded of us. And Lord, help us as we see these words, not to take it as just a doctrinal thing, where we would say it's just something I have to theologically follow, God, affect our hearts. Help us to remember the kind of God that you are. You do not want us to sing empty words. Lord, you want all of us. And so thank you for speaking through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. Well, this guy's the rich young ruler. And I think a lot of us have heard this story before. If you are maybe a, new, a little bit newer to just church in general, it might not be the case, but uh, this rich young ruler story has to do a lot with something called the works salvation. Okay. Um, or in a, in a flip way, it's, it's discipleship, like what it looks like to actually uh, let everything go and to follow Christ. And so when we think about the true nature of discipleship, we can kind of turn to this and say, man, see, this is what it looks like to actually follow Christ versus a man who thought he was following after God, and instead, we can see very clearly that there was a works-based legalistic mentality about this man. And so, it's very simple, like when you look at it in a two-dimensional way of what's going on, and you could take a very simple application out of it, but the work that needs to be done here is that bridge and that gap between what we see and kind of like nod along to as Christian truths. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Like when we know, yes, we're supposed to let everything go to follow Christ. I know that. But the gap is on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Right? The gap is when we wake up in the morning and the things that are going through us. Or late at night before we go to bed. Or when something happens during the day. That's the gap. And so I wanted to address that a little bit with this story. The rich young ruler is, a, is an exchange it's a talk between Jesus and this young man. 
And so you're going to see the rich young ruler talking in verse 17. If you look down there, in verse 18 and 19, Jesus responds. And then the rich young ruler in verse 20 goes. And then Jesus goes in verse 21 and the rich young ruler in 22. And I'm going to take us through a couple points here. And uh, I'm just going to jump right into it. Usually my intros can go pretty long, but I don't want to do that today. But the first point is that good intentions and heartfelt fervor are not enough to truly follow Christ. And I want us to really think about this, not as a point that's written down or, or thought through, but, but think, look at this. Good intentions and heartfelt fervor, if it stands alone, is not enough to follow Christ. And this is scary and this can be very dangerous because many of us might naturally think on an everyday basis that good intention, that God would bless it or that heartfelt fervor is enough, but it's not. This journey that Jesus is getting ready for is actually the journey to the cross. That's what's going on here in this passage. And chapter 11 is where you, where you see kind of, kind of Jesus turning and moving and, and beelining towards the cross. He's headed to Jerusalem to complete what he came into this world to do, to die on the cross and to resurrect. And so chapters 1 through 11 then is filled with an incredible amount of movement. I wouldn't be surprised if Pastor Rand, he, you know, he's taking you through a book like Mark, he, he kind of points this out. The word immediately comes out over and over. Immediately Jesus does this, and immediately Jesus does that. It's a book of action. He goes this way, he goes that way, and then it's just all over the place. And then it comes to a screeching halt at chapter 11 as you see Christ looking at the cross, and he slowly makes his way methodically towards there. And so chapter 10 is found at the end of that. The rich young ruler, this account in Mark, doesn't say anything about him being young or about him being a ruler. But we call him the rich young ruler because in Matthew's account of this man, he is young. And in Luke's account, he's identified as a ruler. This is pretty surprising that his political and religious status is that of a ruler. He was likely a ruler of a synagogue. And it's surprising because this wasn't a position easily given to young people. Remember, this is a highly respect-oriented culture. And so for a rich young ruler to be around, it says a lot about who he is. He's rich, yeah, so God must be blessing him. He's young, so for him to have risen the ranks so quickly says a lot about him, and he's a ruler. Many times, synagogue rulers were for older, wiser, seasoned men who had not only achieved much, but held the esteem and honor of everybody that was around them. So what does that mean about this guy? He's held in high esteem. He's honored. And don't get carried away with the, the Bible Pharisee Christian church stuff that we know about Pharisees. <laughs> Try to think, like this was, this was a man who, who showed probably some kind of heartfelt movement towards the Lord. Now as Jesus is preparing for his final journey to the cross, this rich young ruler approaches him. And this rich young ruler seems the perfect candidate for the kingdom. I think it was shown just a moment ago, but look at this. In verse 17, it says that this rich, rich young ruler runs up to Jesus. This shows desperation. 
It shows urgency. When you're reading scripture, make sure, sure to look at every word. It says, it doesn't say he walks up. It doesn't say he strolls up. It doesn't say he goes up. It says he runs to Jesus. He's desperate and urgent. This respectable, honorable man. If you don't know the story of the prodigal son, you know that, at the, or if you know the story of the prodigal son, you know that when the father runs to meet his son, that was a very dishonorable thing for him to do in the eyes of the community. But this man, this rich young ruler, runs up to Jesus. So we can see something is going on there, right? With his desires. Sorry, I'm getting used to these magnets here. Oh, that thing is strong. So there's desperation and urgency there. In verse 17, it says, he knelt before Jesus. Do you think that's natural? For us, we, we just kind of think of Jesus and we go, it's Jesus. Of course, man, if I saw Jesus, I would kneel. I would prostrate myself, you know? I'd stick my, my face in the dirt and I'll you know, get as low as I can. It's Jesus. He wasn't known like that then. And this is a ruler of a synagogue. He's reverent and humble before Jesus. I mean, this is a rich man. Someone so respected, so high up, and he recognizes something in Jesus that would cause him to kneel. Right? Something in Jesus would cause him to fall down before Jesus, right? So there's something happening inside of him. In a hierarchical community, or culture, this is something not seen, not done, or at least not very easily done. And this was a sign of great respect. In verse 17, the next one, it says that he asks Jesus. There's a lot of verbs. Remember how we said that this, this book of Mark is a lot of movement? There's a lot of verbs. He did this, and he did this, and he did this. It says he runs up, he kneels, and then he asks. He, he inquires. If any of you are teachers and you have a student who comes up and is very like curious, before they ask too many questions and you get annoyed with them, you get, you get kind of encouraged, right? You're like, oh, you have questions? You know, as a pastor, go up and ask Pastor Rand, Pastor Pat, you know, ask them questions because afterwards they're like, oh, that's great, you know? It's, it's helpful because it means that something is happening in this person. And this man comes up to Jesus and it says, he asked him, he is inquisitive, he's hungry for something. Really, this is the, the small group kid that everybody likes, you know? It's like the, the, the kid that comes up and says, I was reading this and I want to know about what this means. They come up to you as a small group leader and they say, like, like, how do I do this? How do I, how do I live my life for God better? Like, wouldn't you glow as a small group leader? Come, let me tell you. This man comes up and he asks, he wants more. He's digging. He's probing. I mean, this is a man who's attained to such great heights at such a young age. And he's coming before Jesus and doing this. He seems to be on the right track. It says in verse 17, he calls Jesus good teacher. Oh, he's very respectful. He sees Jesus as not like a run-of-the-mill guy. There's something in him. He's ready to learn from this Teacher. He says, teacher. In verse 17, he asks a great question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Man, every believer in here, come on. Imagine a coworker comes up to you and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wouldn't you flip out? Wouldn't you be like, praise the Lord, you know, this is amazing. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's depth to this question. That means this young man was probably thinking about this. You would think that a young man like this is already well on his way to eternal life, wouldn't you? People have seen enough in him religiously at least to to make him a synagogue ruler. But he wants to make certain. He comes before Jesus and he asks. He understands the importance of this. And so Jesus answers him. But Jesus answers him by saying, keep these commandments. And there's six of them, six commands. In verse 20, the rich young ruler responds and he says, I have kept all these things from my youth up. This was real. The rich young ruler really believes he did this. Do we have a next slide? I can't remember if I made a slide with, okay, that's okay. You can go back to the previous one. When you, when you see what's going on here, and this rich young ruler coming up with this heartfelt fervor. And in his heart, there's something at least good going on here. And he comes before Jesus, right? And it says in verse 21, if you could look down there one more time, to just cap this off, this, inter- this exchange. In verse 21, it says that Jesus looks at him and Jesus feels a love for him. And I think this is the thing that caps it all off. This is the thing that helps us to realize, is there any ill intent in this man? Is this man trying to get at Jesus, trying to question and interrogate Jesus? No, because Jesus, when he comes across people who are testing him, he will rebuke them or he will challenge them in a certain way. But here, instead of that, it says Jesus looks at him and loves him. There is something real going on in this rich young man. We just don't know quite what that is, but there's some kind of heartfelt thing going on in this man. There is good intention in this man. I don't think he was going after Christ. In Matthew 23, one through seven, we, we remember, like if, I mean, the woes is a big thing. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And, I'm going to just run past all these, okay? This is just a passage that goes on and on and on and on about the woes against the Pharisees because of their wicked and hardened hearts. But not this rich young ruler. Not this young man. Actually, this is the only time in the book of Mark where it says that Jesus looks upon someone and says that he loves them. It's pretty amazing, right? All appearances indicate that this is a sincere man who truly wants to know how I can inherit eternal life. Okay, let's stop here and and go from the story into our own lives. How many of us have come to the sincere place where we look up at God and say, I want to go to heaven. I want eternal life. And maybe even, to a certain extent, I want you. I want your kingdom. I, I want everything. That, that is good, that is being presented at church, that I see in script, uh, that, that all these things, that, that our heart could be heartfelt in this. But this is a scary passage 
Because we've grown accustomed to the idea that we must not be like the religious leaders of Jesus' time. So work salvation is based upon things like that, stories like those kinds of Pharisees. And so a story like this one comes up and it's a little bit startling. Because religious hypocrites, they lorded over the people and were impure in heart motive, but this religious leader we're looking at doesn't quite fit that bill. He had good, humble, reverent, hungry motives. And we can be like this. There can be a genuineness in hunger, a genuineness in wanting to learn, a genuineness in in pursuit of truth. Those things can exist, but we might still fall into a category of good intentions and heartfelt fervor that at its best is still religiously proud. Something about the way this this rich young ruler was living was off. And it's tough to initially put a finger on it, but the rest of this passage is going to show you some of it. That this man was living based upon his works. That his salvation and that his, his merit, like he, he put so much stock in, in the type of life he was living. In not doing these things and then doing these things. And again, if you're not careful, if you've been churched, you can look at this and say like, I understand this. I know that we're not supposed to live like this. But this rich young ruler, we, we have to be careful not to run too quickly to the I know. In the midst of all the good he was doing in his life, there was an overshadowing cloud of sin, ugliness, selfishness, self-centeredness, a desire for my my own kingdom. This stuff was, was saturating this young man's heart. It didn't only threaten his standing as a person trying to follow God, but it completely made all the good he was trying to do obsolete. And there is our danger. We might be thinking we're doing good, thinking that we're glorifying God, that if we come to church and we sing these words, that's it. But that doesn't mean that God accepts it. God doesn't overlook the sinful parts and he like, and he separates it and just takes the good parts. He says like, oh, you're singing these words? So I'll take, I'll take like uh, your, your heart is kind of split here. Your motives are a little off. There's something, that because you're being heartfelt in it, I will, I will take that part. And, and, and Jesus died for this part. And we're gonna talk about this because you might be a little bit of like the ears perking up thing might be happening, right? Like, eh? If the heart isn't in the right place, God is not pleased by our service. Think about this. Think about the lives we lead. And think about, just, is it okay for a pastor to say, let's let's take your eyes off the Bible. (laughs) Is that okay? And think about this. If you are to be in a relationship with a husband, a wife, you know, whatever, a very close relationship. We'll just take husband. I'm a husband. I'll just talk about myself. Okay, that's not fair. I can't come here and as a guest preacher be like, you, you know, me. In my marriage, if you're to think about a marriage and the husband is cheating on his spouse, think about it. Okay, take away all the Christian stuff that we know. 
Again, or if we're allowed to do that just for a second. If you're to think about that marriage, if the husband is cheating on his spouse, even the flowers and the chocolates that he gives to his wife on Valentine's Day, it's kind of like not cool, right? Right? Like just, yeah? <laughs> it's kind of like, in fact, if you knew he was doing that, the chocolates and the, the flowers would, would not just be like not cool, it would feel dirty, Right? Like you see this man coming to his wife and he's cheating and he does this. And he takes her on heartfelt dates. It won't matter because it's all tainted and marred. Actually, those acts of service, it really does take on a tinge of, of disgusting, like, you know, like, ugh. And so it is with God. And again, I'm going I'm to pull us back in just a moment, but just, just sit here for a little bit. Just relationally, we're so quick to think of our, our relationship with God as something where he is some off deity who is so far off over there and I can just lob my glory at him, right? Just like I, I live for the glory of God. And so I do these things and we lose the relationship. We lose what it would feel like for us to, to, to cheat, and we come and we say, Jesus, right? And we're so quick to come to this place where we look at the, the, the works or, or even heartfelt intention. And then we come before God and we, we want to receive things, but are we really close and walking with him? And so you keep living like that. Okay, that's a moment, moment of honesty with all of us to ourselves. Yeah, just in your own hearts. You keep living like that, and not only does jadedness, apathy happen, but what happens? More and more, you drift into darkness. We think that we can keep sinning. We think we can keep living in darkness and still serve God, and we create this huge gap between our theology and between our lives, and we try to fill that huge gap, not with love and submission and obedience, but we fill that gap with saying, should be okay, because Jesus, because of his grace, right? We, that, is that true? 100% true. But don't run there too quick. We think that, we're, that with what we're able to, we give to God, and then with our surplus, we can serve him. But it's never wholeheartedly. Not with everything we have. So with that, we place conditions on our following of Christ. There are places where we say, I mean, when I, when I became a Christian, I said, I'll give everything up, but on the day-to-day, -day, there are conditions we place. We say, don't touch this part of my life. We don't say it actively. It screams in our heart, though. This part is mine. And it seems like such a small part of our heart. We're just saying it's just this little sliver of our heart. It's just this little, I, I give so much. I serve in so many ways. I've given up so many things. What about this little part? And we come before God and we think that it's okay to give a portion of our hearts like that because it's 95% or 99% or 99.9%. Or 99.9999%. And we come before God and we say, that should be enough. But, but you know what? What we remember when we followed Christ, he said all of it. Not a single thing reserved. 
Not a section of the heart reserved from the Lord you love. Because we're not actually wholeheartedly serving God, we're relegating to a portion of our lives and that in and of itself, it begins this great danger of a Christianity that is half-hearted and we're deluded. God has become an accessory in our lives, some means of salvation. Is it a true desire? I think so. I think there is some truthfulness. I think there's some genuineness to the desire. But let's be clear about the biblical desire, the biblical heart that we are called to here. Even true desire can be devoid of submission to Christ's call where it would have someone like Paul. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We know that. I heard that, that, that uh, Rand went through like, like disciple, discipleship and all that kind of stuff, right? So we know this, right? It's I have been crucified. Again, the Christian thing to do is look at it and be like, oh yeah, yeah, me too. I have been crucified with Christ. I, like, I, I'm on that cross. I'm, I'm dead. But when we kind of think about what's actually going on here, what it's calling us to, it's huge, right? Because when we really think about it, when we think about, like, think about the totality of your paycheck, how much of that paycheck is actually like for the kingdom? And think about that because we have bills to pay. We have things to do. We need to save. And then some Bitcoin. We have all these things going on. And really, we say like, yes, it all belongs to you, God. And we sing it. All belongs to you, God. Right? But when we think, when we're so quick to bridge that gap because of our theology, because of what Christ did, oh, man, it's scary. When you're real about it, there's going to be a knee-jerk reaction in the flesh, Right? No. Like, you're called to crucifixion. Take up your cross daily, follow, right? If you're truthful, Christians wouldn't be so quick, even as believers, to say, like, so quickly, okay, why? Because we're, we're not. We haven't today been able to look into our hearts and say, all of it has been given up. That all of it is his. And the call to Christian living in scripture screams against this idea of portioned giving. We can talk about enjoying vacations and food and entertainment and partaking in the simple pleasures of life later. But the starting point is that we've, we've given it all up. And until we get that straight in our lives, we can't move on to how we might enjoy these things properly. We're so quick in our theology to talk about like the, yeah, I know like we're called to the glory of God and then there's the Christian liberties and then we're able to talk through things just on a, you know, over, over tea and crumpets. We're able to talk about these types of things. But when we're actually real about it, we can see how, how far we are from it because it says like, of course I can watch movies. Of course I could go to Hawaii. Of course I could do these things. But for real, the Christian call, we know it to be, I have given up everything. And so, if a pastor ever comes up here and says, like, maybe you should rethink that vacation you've been saving for. Why, are, why is our knee-jerk reaction so quick and so violent? Say, like, hey, I'm allowed. 
I don't know. Do, do, do you guys see where I'm coming from at all? Here's some examples of God not wanting Israel's sacrifices. Okay, Psalm 51:16 says, "For you do not delight." You gotta think relationally. Uh, we we treat God like some like robot God, you know, like like theology. <laughs> we like build him up, and we have some like oh we piece them together. He's a jigsaw puzzle, and then we could take him apart and put him away. No, no, no. He said he's he's God. He's real. He's relational. He says, "For you do not delight in sacrifice; otherwise, I would give it." Think about how easy that would have been to be an Israelite, man. Just give us all these rules about the sacrifices that I need to give. I'll do it. It might be hard, man. Another lamb, man. All my veggies, you know. <laughs> you gotta, I gotta burn it all, you know. All this stuff, and then we 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 come and we see. He says, like, otherwise I would give it. I get that. You get that, right? Like, if it feels just like like do these things. Wouldn't Christianity be so easy? Just go to church once a week. Go to Bible study. And try to have at least like one real meaningful conversation with, with someone this week, right? Share the gospel a little bit over lunch and then, and then make sure to try to like raise your kids up in the beginner's Bible. And he says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Ah, gosh, I hate that, right? You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And this is the problem. Right? Like, like I could give things, but broken spirit type stuff where I am contrite before God, like that's, that's different. And it says that God is not looking at the sacrifice part. He is looking at the, the heart part. And he's saying that heart part is leading to the sacrifice stuff. So if you're trying to just give the sacrifice stuff without the heart, you missed everything. Okay, our Christian cultured stuff is now you're like, ah, okay, I remember this stuff. Hosea 6.6, 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Romans 14.23, it says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, take your attention back into verse 17 here. In this story, the big problem is found in one word. Okay? It's when the rich young ruler uses the word good. So in your mind, just look at that word. It says, good teacher. Right? That's how he addresses Jesus. Good teacher. And this is big time talk. This wasn't a word very easily ascribed to people. It was usually ascribed singularly to God. Okay? Now, there, there's some, there's some like, conversation in this we could have, but on a general level, that word good was very important. Now, this explains why Jesus responds in the way he does. Remember the coworker who says, like, hey, you're a Christian. How, how can I inherit eternal life? We would love that, right? And Jesus does that weird thing he does every once in a while, the foxes have holes thing, where he just like says something like completely weird. And he goes like, oh, okay, then follow these things. And you're like, oh, I get it, but, but it's weird because why, why those six things? Right? Like we have to stop and we can't just be like Jesus saying be a good person. We have to look at what Jesus is trying to communicate. So this is a big time talk, and this kind of explains. So Jesus first responds in verse 18, look there, it says, no one is good except God alone. He's like, got it, okay. Jesus corrected him. 
This rich young ruler was flippantly using this word. Jesus isn't denying the rich young ruler and saying, no, 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 I'm not actually good. You know, he's not saying that. He, let's be clear. Jesus isn't confessing that he's sinful here. He's trying to point out that the man's understanding of good is all wrong. This man isn't coming to Jesus thinking that Jesus is God. This man is coming to Jesus wanting to learn from another teacher, another rabbi. He's going up to Jesus saying, good teacher, because it reflects what he learns. It reflects what he thinks about his life. This teacher will teach me. Tell me what to do, and I will do it in order to be good enough or good to go to heaven. See, Romans 3.10 is a very familiar passage. It says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. A simple rule of hermeneutics, when you see repetition, flag it, right? So what's the flag in this one? None. No one, there is not a single person who is righteous, not a single person who understands, there is not a single person who seeks for God. Look at the end there. There is not a single person who does good. How is this man coming up to Jesus and saying, good teacher? You're like, wait, 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 this was Romans though, right? Like this was after his time. He didn't know, cut him some slack. No, this is from Psalms. That's why it's all capitalized right there. It's a quote from Psalms. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. My oldest daughter, her name is Addie, and when she obeys, sometimes... Um, I'll say, I'm like, man, you've been so, that's so good. You know, you've been so good. I remember earlier on, I, I'm trying to stop a little bit. If you do it, hey, don't like, I'm not trying to push my agenda on you, okay? But then I used to be like, hey, be good before I would leave the doors. Like meaning, listen to mom and stuff like that, right? Don't, don't be mean to each other. I would say, be good. And then there was a moment where as a parent, I stepped back from that. I was like, is that kind of a cruel ask, <laughs> you know? Be good. And then I'm like, where did this come from? You know? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a Christian that's like this. As if God is looking at me and saying, like, be good. Don't do bad things, do good things. And I'm like looking at this rich young ruler, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, dude. I don't I don't think the rich young ruler was a believer. Okay? And I am a believer, but yet I see a shadow of the rich young ruler in my fleshly heart. I look at Addie and my theology says she's a desperate sinner, right? Like, she is such a sinner. Man, I could write out a whole essay of how sinful this little girl is. Why then do I think that she was good today or bad yesterday? It's it's weird. Then doing good things gets all mixed up with with being a good person, right? And then when we slowly look here and say, like, what does it mean to be a good person? And it's it's gone. I I know Rand, like, he's always walking around with, is the Superman belt still on you? you? Is that still there? That thing's, I don't know. Do you have, like, a lot of those? Is that the same one from forever? 
You have four of them, okay. So, you know, he walks around this thing. So I'll use a superhero analogy. When, when like, the Batman things happen, like the Dark Knight stuff and the, the, the newest, whatever. I can't remember all the Batman movies, I'm sorry. But then, so when it happens, the thing that blew everyone away was, like, these bad guys, right? <gasps> they're not actually all that bad. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's some good in them. And then it brought you into this emotional turmoil, right? Right? No? Like Two-Face? It gets all mixed up. Like even like what it is to be a good person these days, we get all mixed up. Like like, like oh, I don't want to get hijacked here by, by political things, but like when George Floyd stuff happened, a lot of people are talking about that, right? But like, people are saying this and then that and a good person this and but who did that and all this stuff, right? Should we have a monument about uh, like re, like relegated to him or not? And so I realized, taking a step back, like even seeing this rich young ruler, I'm like, oh man, like I'm, I'm just as guilty as this young man. We know this, that there is no one good. We know this, that there is no one deserving of any of God's grace or mercy or compassion or, or love or, or any of that. But I think the way we saunter around, even as Christians, we kind of stroll around and there's so much rich young ruler in us. I think the rich young ruler knew this too because he probably had Psalm 51 memorized. And it creeps in. Works, salvation. Sometimes it doesn't just creep in, it becomes foundational to our thinking. And we have to combat that erroneous way of thinking with the truth of God's word. There is no one good. Bridge that gap. We have to begin to dissect and categorize things in our lives. There's a danger when we say, I can actually be good by my works, apart from God. And then our heart begins to divide and we say at a certain point without even realizing, is this good enough? Will God accept like at least a portion? And we know the answer is no. He does not receive only a portion of your heart. He is not happy with the child coming up to him saying like, here's 95%. He wants it all. It has always been that way and it will always be that way. Everything. When we dissect and categorize things in our lives, we have the places for the big sins. And then we have the place for, for relationships that are designated as sinful, like, like with parents or something. Uh, we come to church and we can st still look like the shining example of a Christian. And somehow, some way, there are those, sinning in, uh, those of us sitting in this room that have a secret life. And we come and we look like the shining example And it terrifies me. I see it in me too. And I see how, 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 how much it pervades into my heart. I see how like, like I call things not for what it is. That I say that these things are big sins so they're bad so I gotta tackle them but my laziness, let's be real, let's be honest with what we're talking about. Laziness, slothfulness. When it's there we're like, Greed, come on. Greed. Oh man, we're greedy. We are so greedy. 
You're greedy, you're greedy, you're greedy. I'm so greedy. Man, there, there's, we come before God. How do we ever go like, is this good enough? You know the type of worship that he wants. That's why it makes sense when he says, I don't want your sacrifices. Don't just throw up words. Don't just throw up portions of your heart. He says, give it all. 100% is what I want from you. At every given point in time, anytime you enter into worship, all of your life is ought, it ought to be worship. Every point when you're walking this life, I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you're good. God is saying, what I'm saying is come to me. All of you. And so we can be good people who kind of sort of struggle with sins. And we relegate that. Some of our sins struggles with with one of the pet sins we have in our lives. And we look at that one sin and we say, if I just kick that sin, I'm going to be flying high. I'm not too bad. That's my main battle right there. And our standard is not God. Our standard is this world. And the messed up people that fill it. And further broken down, our standard is one another. For those of us who have been in the church for a little longer, we know more, we've experienced more, so we actually feel pretty good. And we may say with our words and and, and what we know, which is I'm not good, I'm sinful, I need God's grace, but whisper, whisper, whisper in the heart, it's like I'm not bad. See, that's how this rich young ruler came up to Jesus. He came up with this question, how can I inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says these things, right? Man, I don't know what happened. Oh, hold on, let me, let me fast forward here. This man comes to Jesus, verse 19. Jesus asks him some more questions. He says, you know the commandments, and he lists six of them, okay? Uh, can we get the commandments up and... Here are the Ten Commandments. Oh, they're not on one slide. That's okay. Here are the first five, okay? No other gods before him, no idols. Don't take the name of the Lord, uh, Lord God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Now, if we go to the next slide, the ones he lists, you could check it to your scriptures. It says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. And then it says, don't defraud. But many people think that's talking about don't covet. And it makes sense in the line of things here, right? And then he ends with, number five, if you go back a slide, honor your father and mother. Really weird. He says commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 5. <laughs> Very strange. Honestly, I, I have my theories on why 5 he ended last. I was like, shouldn't you put that 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10? But, but let, let's, let's take that for a, a debate for another day, okay? Today, let's look at why did he choose these 6? Oh, I know Rand has taught this. I know, I know Pat teaches this. Right? When you look at the commandments, where's the break? The 10 commandments. Between? Numbers four and five, right? One, two, three, four, vertical relationship, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, horizontal relationship. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, what does God say? All of my commandments are are broken down into what two things? Love God and love others. Ten commandments reflects it. One, two, three, four, love God. This is how you honor me, love me, submit to me, obey me, live for me. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, this is how you love other people. So it's not, it's not like all encapsulating and yet, yet it's helpful. And so he does this. 
When Jesus says this, and the rich young ruler, how could he possibly, first of all, say that he's kept them all? I mean, Matthew 5, 21, it says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. There is our commandment, right? And then Jesus says, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, right? Angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Takes a commandment and he deepens it, right? And so he might, have, he might as well have said like, you know, which of you, like, like follow commands, meaning like don't ever get angry at someone. How could this rich young ruler look at Jesus and say, I've kept all the commandments, right? And so Jesus is challenging him, saying like, here they are. Five, uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 5. Rich young ruler says, I did it. I mean, the other one, Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Come on, right? This is like one of those things. At the end of Matthew 5, that's why when he says, therefore, you must be perfect. You need to be holy, right? You're like, ah, like what are you supposed to do? But whatever the case, Jesus came to, to bring this to extreme clarity. And so being religious is what was happening here. And it's a danger to true Christianity. And it's what Jesus came to combat. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we struggling with a similar thing here? So the problem with the Pharisees was that they thought they had to follow a set of rules. Okay, we're nodding to that. This was a religion to them. And so no wonder it was easy for them to follow into a set of rules and then make these rules proliferate into like a bunch of rules. They had rule children, right? It was crazy. There's just a lot of rules. And so for them might be thinking, we're flying clear of this. We're, we're not doing these big bad things. But when Jesus deepens it into our heart, we know that, man, much, this is much closer to us than we think. I mean, how often do we, when, when somebody asks you, how are you doing spiritually? Like, what, are, what, what comes to your mind? I haven't looked at anything impure on the computer in a good while. Man, I read my Bible five out of seven times this week. What's my prayer life been looking like? You know, how many, how many times do I pray regularly? You know, like we think about the things we do and we think, think about the things we don't do. How we've been keeping up with our disciplines, our starting points become our actions. And so this is the problem for us. You might say this is a story about people who call themselves Christians but don't really follow after Christ. But what about us is true to being Christ followers? So sanctification matters here. Because in justification, we're good, right? Salvation is ours. But the progress of sanctification is going to show something in us, right? That what we proclaimed back at justification is the thing we continue to proclaim, is the things that we continue to die to, is the things that we continue to give up, and we continue to live for Christ in that manner. See, this man was genuine and heartfelt, but he was puffed up in pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. There was no humility in this man. And so the question again has to be, what about me? What about us? Where does the shadow of the rich young ruler exist in this congregation? So that was the first point. Second point is in order to follow Christ, we must give up everything. It's a lot shorter. In verse 21, it says Jesus looks at him and loves him. What Jesus does is look past all the superficial stuff. 
Can you imagine coming to Jesus? Like, for real. Like, we say we come before God. We come to his throne of grace and confidence. But really imagine coming to his throne of grace. Or maybe just stop with the grace thing for a second and go, imagine what it would be like to approach the throne. <laughs> you know? It is a gracious throne. But um, don't forget. What, what would he say of us and the lives that we've been living? And if you were to imagine that with me, are you willing now today to give up all the things you know you're holding on to? You know it. You know what it is. Come on. You know what you're holding on to right now. It could be a straight up sin. It could be something that you think is not so bad. It could be something that is very acceptable in the eyes of not only the world, but maybe in a church congregation. But do that work. Allow the spirit to move in you and say, well, what is it? I might have looked upon this rich young ruler. When I was a youth pastor, I look at these youth students and I'd be like, dude, this is the perfect guy, you know? Like, oh, wow, look at him. Coming and asking these great questions. But Jesus saw through it all because that's what God does. He sees through it all. He sees you right now. He knows you. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows where you've been keeping yourself from him. He knows what you've been unwilling to surrender. He knows. He doesn't look upon his children with disappointment and like, like frustration and anger. I think he really looks upon his children with, with great love. That's why the call to obedience and call to submission these days sounds so terrible in this world, but, but I think it's like the most loving thing he can extend to his children. He says, obey. Submit to my will. Live for me. This man asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus doesn't go to him and say, and say like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? He says, the commandments, which is a weird thing. If he knows that this is a work salvation guy, why would you bring in the work stuff, you know? But he did it to expose something. And that exposure happens when Jesus concludes by saying, go and sell everything you have. How does that relate to the commandments that he gave? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Why would Jesus talk only about the horizontal relationship and nothing with the vertical in the 10 commandments? He's trying to expose something in this rich young man. He does not love God. And that should have just taken him aback and been like, hey, what happened to the first four? And he challenges this rich young man and says, sell every single thing that you have. Everything. Get rid of all of it. This rich young man does not truly love God. This rich young man doesn't truly love others. This rich young man has not and cannot keep the law that he claims to have kept. For all his genuine desires, for all his heartfelt actions, it's been a religion to him that has no ability to save him. He cannot inherit eternal life where he is. And so in verse 22, the story says, he walks away sad. 
the actual, the, the Greek itself says that there's a storm cloud over him, you know, darkness as he walks away. Man, Jesus says to that man, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. He says, you have so many things you love, but you do not love God. Isn't that challenging? I'm not trying to convince you that you're not a Christian. I'm trying to challenge us by saying the shadow of the rich young ruler exists in our flesh. Okay, to conclude, what does the application, and this is the application you guys could talk about. I don't know if, if you guys eat lunch or whatever together, but uh, if you guys kind of swing all the way through, what does it look like to give up everything? That's on you. Like, it, it would... If you, if you feel any kind of conviction in any way um, and it ends there, then it's just more disobedience. And, and if it's delayed obedience where you're like, I got to think through this and see if I can really give these things up, uh, there, there's some disobedience there before God. And so take this application to heart. What does it look like for me to give up everything, all of it, because we all have to apply these scriptures into our heart. So go to God and think about those things. Um, and can I just read for us 1 Corinthians 13? Sorry, I know I'm running real fast through the last two points, but um, we love this passage, right? But let's remember what God thinks about love. Okay? That if we're trying to serve God without a, a true love for God, a real love for God. You're relationally walking with him. When you sin against him, you know you are hurting him. You are asking him for forgiveness. You're saying, God, I'm sorry. You're, saying, you're, you're treating him like a real person, you know? Let's remember what God says. If I, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clinging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It is not telling you only how to like, love others. Like this is how I can love my wife. This is talking about love, period. The call to love God is a call for you to surrender and to give up the love that you have for the things of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you alone are God. There is nobody like you. You are second to none. You are the creator, the holy one. You are the powerful one. At the word of your power, you created all things. You are the one who sustains our very breath, our heartbeat. Our molecules stay together by your word. All things run through you. All things are about you. All things are to your glory. One day every knee will bow down. Every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And God, you are our Father. And we love you. God, we love you so much. And we're sorry for our tainted offerings. We're sorry, Lord, that we think you would want 
us to give you things. And Father, we've forgotten that you simply ask for our whole heart. You don't want our performance, Lord. You want our love. And so help us because we are so weak and feeble. Help us to stop posturing and pretend like we're not. God, help us to come to you, kneel down, and to just declare songs of worship and love to you. Thank you, God, for a community that we can do this together. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that in Christ, these things have been absorbed. That it is no longer your wrath, but your healthy, loving discipline upon our lives. That we might follow you wherever you might lead us. Take everything we have, God. It's all yours. And we do it gladly. In Jesus' name we pray.